Welcome to episode one of Coffee and Circuses. Today I'm talking to Ellen Swift, reader in archaeology at the University of Kent. Ellen's been a major figure in Romano British archaeology for about getting on for close to 20 years now. Um, she's had a real big impact on how we look at items from the Roman world, particularly everyday small functional items like dice, jewellery, spoons, um, and has really changed our perception of these items in the Roman world. She's also written on the end of the Western Roman Empire and on the decoration of Roman buildings. Uh, she's currently working on a project with the Petrie Museum of Egyptology in London, uh, and she's going to be talking about that in today's episode, talking in particular about the musical instruments in the collection and how she and her co-researchers have had replicas of these instruments made and how they've used them to recreate um, some music from the ancient world. So we're going to be talking about that, the importance of experimental archaeology, and Ellen's also going to go into how she got into archaeology, what she originally went to university to do before she switched to archaeology, which maybe most people don't know about her, uh, also how she feels about having a Wikipedia page and looking back on writing a Shire book. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, Shire books are these really small, brief companions to Roman archaeology. But as Ellen says, it's to date probably her bestseller because uh, most archaeologists tend to have at least a few of them kicking around on their bookshelves. Um, but it's a really interesting conversation. Thanks for joining me. Uh, before I get on to the actual discussion with Ellen, though, just want to say that TRAC, the Theoretical Roman Archaeology Conference, being held here at the University of Kent next year in April. Uh, tickets are now on sale for it, as well as a list of sessions. Uh, and we've put out the call for papers uh, for those sessions and a call for posters as well. So if you go to the track website or if you go to the Facebook page, the Twitter account, all that social media jazz, uh, you can find links and information there. So do check it out. Um, great. Well, as I say, thanks for tuning in. And now on with the show with a catchy 8-bit theme tune. of your voice until That's you listen right. back. And I mean, I, there are some habitual phrases that I, I know that I use, like at the end of the lecture, I always say, let's leave it there for today then, shall we? And I know I say that, but I still say <laughs> So even self-awareness doesn't make you change your behaviour necessarily. Yeah. I suppose at least it's a little sign-off so they know that's... Well, exactly. So I guess they come to expect it and that's, you know, that's fine. So hopefully it's not too irritating. You don't know, do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well... I suppose I've come to realise that when you're teaching a particularly big group of like 50 odd people, you're not going to please everybody. No, you, just, you, just, no. you just hope the vast majority are fine with it. And I think so far doing Rome Britain this term is going pretty well, mm. I think anyway, at mm -hmm. least. But I was saying before, before we started, before I had my teething problems with the microphone, how does it feel to not actually be teaching all the time at the moment in the sense of time? Do you feel a little bit kind of out of sync with the rest of the uni? Or um, yes, I suppose I do feel sort of slightly detached from the teaching side of things, not so much the research side, because I also have a job doing research management at the moment. So at least I'm kind of logged into what other people are doing in that regard. Um, it is strange not doing teaching, and I do miss it. Um, but I'm not complaining about having lots of research leave, obviously. No. How is the how is the research project going? I guess for, for the sake of listeners, do you want to outline what it is you're actually undertaking? Yeah, so this is a project that we're doing with the Peachy Museum in London, 
and it's looking at their neglected Roman and late antique artefact collection. So they have 8,000 artefacts from that, those periods in their collection, and hardly any of them have been studied by scholars. So it's a great opportunity for us to look at those artefacts. So myself, together with April Pudsey at Manchester Metropolitan University, and our own Joe Stoner here at Kent. She won the podcast at some point. That's right, we're the project team (laughs) for this AHRC-funded project to to look at that collection. And it's been great fun so far. I've really, really Mm. enjoyed it. It's really nice to be doing a collaborative project, working with lots of different people, getting to meet lots of different people, and they've all been great contributors to the project. And it's also been really great just learning about new things. I've learned so much about topics that I've never studied before. I'd never worked on Egypt before I started this project, so... It's been a massive learning curve, but I've really, really enjoyed it so far. How did you get into this area of research then, um, in terms of the this this research project? How did you come up with it? I mean, one of the things I always wonder about is, is, is it a case that this has grown out of something you were doing previously, or did you just happen to yes. come across something where you were like, oh, this is this is an interesting thing no, that I think looked into? What I found in research is that one thing leads to another. So for my previous research project, I was looking at functional objects, including Roman dice. And as it turned out, the Peachy Museum had quite a big collection of Roman dice. So I went there to look at those objects. And whilst I was there, I realised what an amazing resource they have for the Roman period, which is neglected. So it kind of came out of that, really. So when I was thinking about an idea for a grant application, I had a good surf through their web catalogue, which is online, um, to see what the scope was, and then I designed the project from that. Okay. Did you originally intend to do all the things such as the 3D modelling of instruments and using them, or was that something that started to develop as the project developed? Or was um, that yes, from the start? It, it was built in from the beginning, because I suppose when I looked at the categories of material, I saw that they had a good collection of musical instruments, and then that very obviously seemed like a good thing to do for the impact part of the project, which it has to be to do with public outreach. And I immediately had this idea that we could have replica musical instruments at a little exhibition at the Peach Museum, and that would be a great interactive tool. Now, of course, as we've been doing the work, it's become obvious that that process of making the replicas can also feed into the research goals of the project. So it's that side of it that's developed a bit more. But the idea of having the musical instruments and making replicas was there right from the beginning. Hmm. Do you Did you enjoy doing the recording? Is that, has that been one of the favourite parts? <laughs> yes, we... it was great. We, we had a little group of, of volunteers and I really enjoyed sort of teaching the volunteers <laughs> some of the music. And most people didn't have any musical experience, really, and that was quite interesting as yeah. well to work with people who didn't have much music background and we had a great time kind of learning these little tunes and rhythms and of course I had to learn to sing in ancient Greek something that I've not done before so yes it was fun I mean it was quite a pressurized day when we went over to the the Medway campus to do the sound recording in the professional sound studio so I did feel the pressure a bit on that day but I think we all enjoyed it at the same time. I love the way you didn't drop any names there about people that don't have a musical background that are involved <laughs> I'll own up to that one um <laughs> I was talking to to Nikos from Architecture yes. the other day, mm-hmm. and he was he was talking about and asking how did the recording go, yes. and he was like, "Are you going to start a band? You could start, you could come up with an Egyptian Beatles tribute band. You could call yourself <laughs> the Scarabs." And I was like, "That's a great name." He's like, well, "Which which one would you be?" And I was like, "Probably Pete Best, the drummer that yeah. was there before, and everyone forgot." <laughs> yeah, so that's a great idea. But I think I mean it was good to have 
untrained musicians because I didn't want us to go to professional musicians who then would do a quite a different performance. But if we think about the everyday use of these instruments in the Roman period, sure, some of them would have been used by professional musicians, but many would just be used by people in their everyday lives just for entertainment. So I wanted to capture that aspect of things, really. So in some ways, it was a very deliberate choice not to get professional musicians involved. Mm. It was catchy as well. <laughs> very catchy. I mean, you don't quite realise. I don't suppose you realise, do you? You think about... I mean, I guess maybe you could have presumed that music from the past is going to be catchy to some degree. But when you actually hear it, it was quite interesting how much of a kind of an earworm it actually was. Yes, those tunes really stick in your brain, don't they? Especially the one that I learned for the pan pipes. (laughs) It's rather a maddening little tune. But yes, I found it interesting to see just some elements of, of difference just in the way that music is arranged or the rhythms that they were fond of. And it's it's much more different than you initially envisage, I think, to to what we do today. With your own kind of personal interest, mm. as you sort of mentioned, you've got a musical background yes. yourself because you sing in a choir, you yes. know, to play piano. Mm-hmm. And do you know any other instruments? I do play the violin as well, but okay, I haven't well. played the violin for you know really for a long time. It's not such a rewarding instrument to play as a solo instrument, whereas the piano, because you've got two lines of music at once, then you can play more interesting pieces, and it's more interesting to play sort of by yourself. Um, I think, I mean, choosing the musical instruments didn't really come from my musical background, but of course, because I knew that I had that musical background, I knew I'd be able to manage looking at them yeah. and understanding some of the more technical aspects to do with the scores and the scales that are used. So I suppose it was necessary background for the project, but that's not why I chose the instruments particularly. Okay. In general, though, I mean, do you find the... I mean, do you often find personal interest kind of seeps into your your academics work um, um, or I, is it? Well, I was thinking about this and I think really it's the other way around. If, if oh, okay. So, for instance, when I was at the Peachy Museum looking at their bead collection, I got really interested in how the beads were made because that's an important part of classifying them and dating them. And, and that led me to then go on a, a day course to make glass beads so that I could try and understand the manufacturing techniques a bit more and recognise the signs of the manufacturing when I look at the finished artefacts. And I think that quite often happens. I'm doing something archaeologically and then I'll get more interested in it as a hobby from a hobby perspective, uh-huh, if you like, okay. and end up doing something or a few things that relate to that, you know, just as fun activities and things that also inform my research. Of course, that makes me sound like a massive nerd, like... <laughs> Nothing I do, you know, outside work isn't informed by archaeology. And of course, that's not the case. But uh, I guess archaeology does affect my leisure time quite a lot, actually, because, yeah, I mean, there's nothing I love better on holiday than going around some Roman site. Or yeah, thing. yeah. <laughs> it's I've, just the way it is. I, I've come to discover that now. I don't, the idea of going on a beach holiday doesn't really appeal to no. me so much. A few years ago, a friend of mine got married on the south coast of turkey mm. um so me and some of my other friends went to istanbul hired a car and then drove down yes. the the west coast of turkey going mm. to places like mm. ephesus and um persia 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 i can't know if i'm saying on top of the on top of the hill the per, 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 pergamon pergamon that's the yes. one yeah um but um yeah, that, that was really great. And then when we got to the the end of it and we got to the, the beach resort when mm. we were getting married, it was nice for a couple of days. But mm. after a while, I was getting a bit twitchy. Yes. And I was like, are there any sites around here that I <laughs> exactly. can go and see? Exactly. Um, yeah, I guess because I, I, the thing is, I suppose that archaeology is one of those things that most people do because they love it anyway. Yes. If you weren't actually doing it as a job, you'd probably still 
be involved mm. in it to some degree. Yes, I guess as so. a hobby. Yeah. Um, I'd be taking it right back to start. So, how did mm. you first get actually into to archaeology? What was the? Um, I think I got in. There's a number of different sort of points in my life where I think about having come across archaeological things and, and finding it interesting. And I suppose once a family holiday, we went to Avebury. We were travelling to another destination, and we just stopped off at Avebury, and that made a really big impression on me because mm. it's not something I knew anything about previously. And then also kind of stumbling across Hadrian's Wall again on some family holiday. Um, so things like that from when I was quite small. And then I think when I was a teenager, I started reading more books about like Schliemann discovering Troy and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And that I got quite interested in archaeology. But I think I've always been curious about the Romans. Um, some of it's from children's books. So there's, there's children's books by Rosemary Sutcliffe called The Eagle of the Ninth, that, yeah. that series of books that uh, kind of hooked me on the Romans to a degree and I also found it really curious as a child kind of seeing the Romans pop up in different contexts that seemed superficially unrelated so um, my parents are quite religious so they took me to church as a child and of course the Romans are a big feature of the Bible and then the Romans were in Britain too and that seemed really mysterious to me how they could be in these separate contexts and so that kind of sparked an interest as well I think so so I have been interested in the Roman period right from that, that early childhood, I think. That's an interesting point, though. I wonder how many people who study particularly Roman archaeology start off with any form of religious background. It just yes. makes me wonder, because my parents are Catholic as yes. well. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't read I think there might be. Here, but... I think there might be an overlap, yeah. actually. And I do find, I mean, I'm not religious anymore either, but I am still very interested in the history of Christianity. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that drew me towards the late Roman period, specifically because it's the period of Christianity. And, I'm, yeah, I've always found that very interesting. And I have noticed it with students, particularly students who have a Catholic background. I have noticed that they're very interested in the, the religious content that we do. Yeah. So it's, I suppose there's things like if you go to go to church, you go to a Catholic church, you you read the Nicene Creed. So well, yes, yeah. that people feel more connected to it, I think. I mean, obviously, for somebody who has not been brought up in a Christian tradition, maybe it just seems irrelevant or alienating. But if there's that level of recognition there, then people are more likely to, to find it interesting. Yeah. I sometimes wonder if there's almost like a subconscious connection to your childhood that is... Yes, kind of I think it there. conditions it's... what we're interested in more than we realise, actually. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's fascinating. How did you... So you went to the Institute of Archaeology. Mm -hmm. Was that for undergraduate through to PhD? Yes, or? I stayed there for a long time. I mean, I, when I first went to university, I actually went to do sciences. I went to do pharmacy for a degree. And, of course, that turned out to be the worst decision <laughs> that I'd ever made. I had a timetable that was nine to five every day in the laboratory, and I made friends with a bunch of humanities students who only had, like, a few hours a week. So I was staying up very late in the evening socialising with my friends, and I could just couldn't hack it in the lab at nine the next day. So, um, I mean, that's not the only reason that <laughs> I didn't take pharmacy, but it, it clearly was the wrong decision for me, and... At Christmas, I, I kind of went home and had a big chat with my sister and uh, decided that I was going to um, change subjects. So I went back the next term and, and withdrew from the course. And then I started archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology the following year. So I was already in London doing pharmacy. So the reason I came to London was to, to go to the School of Pharmacy. And then I wanted to stay in London because I was having such a fabulous time when I was there. So I just went over to the Institute of Archaeology and said, oh, can I come here instead? And 
And they said yes, so that's that's how that happened. Where are you from originally? I'm from Nottingham. Nottingham, oh, okay. <clears throat> Actually in Nottingham or outside of Nottingham? Um, it's outside, it's kind of quite near where Nottingham University is. Yeah. How did you go down the route of looking particularly at... Because your main area of interest now is, I suppose you might say, small finds. Yes, I mean, to some degree, right, also yes. art and design as well. In yes, the that's world. right, yeah. How did you come to go down that route to focus on that um well again i think they're quite deep rooted things really just connected to to my personality i'm very interested in aesthetics i always have been um how things look is important to me and and i've always been very interested in small objects so i was one of those children who have a little collection of treasures and kind of gets them and looks at them and stuff so and i've i've always been kind of drawn to objects so it seemed very natural to me i think to, to develop an interest in Objects, and I was lucky enough to have a supervisor at the Institute of Archaeology who was open to that and thought it, that was a valuable topic to study. So that was Richard Rees. I mean, obviously he's a coins specialist, but he was very open to an artifact focus and willing to support me in that uh, goal. So that was great. I've got to ask how of interest because <laughs> teaching a Roman Britain at the moment, you. I keep coming back to my Roman Britain yes. book. What was what was Richard like having as a supervisor? Oh, he was Richard. Is, is his character is his character <laughs> when you meet him very much reflected in the way he writes? Yeah, yes, he's a very singular person, and I mean, I think Richard is fantastic, and he's inspired so many people, both at undergraduate level and also researchers as well. There's a lot of academics around the UK who had Richard as their their supervisor, and I know they all would say the same. So he's obviously a big part of my how my career has developed and the choices that I've made, because as soon as I discovered him at the Institute of Archaeology, I just took all of his courses. And of course, I um, have been quite influenced by him in my own academic approach to the subject as well. He was very keen on empirical data and looking at things from first principles. And um, certainly a, a strong emphasis on empirical data is a big feature of my work. Mm, so starting with the data set and then working from there and yes that's right it's i think well it's it's important to have both a theoretical perspective and to have the data but it's also very important not to go chasing after data that supports the theory that you're interested in so i think if you have a, a large data set and you're attentive to that data set then that data will make you change your mind about the theory side of things so it becomes a kind of feedback loop where the two sides of it are, um, you know, it's a sort of dialectic between the theoretical perspectives and the empirical data, and then hopefully you can come up with something that takes both perspectives into account that's a kind of truer reflection of what's there than if you were just working in isolation with one of those two things. I mean, it's very hard to say, isn't it, whether our research... Well, what connection there is between our research and no, that's I don't want to get into that topic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just find the frustration. Do you ever get that frustration though, where you've got an idea in your mind, you looked at data, you've mm. got an idea in your mind, you know where it's going, and then mm. suddenly it just doesn't quite get there. It doesn't like the well. The, the frustrating thing is how much of archaeological data is inconclusive. So mm. there's a lot of times where you just don't have the information. And that that is really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I just get frustrated because I've just got I've got a clearing my because when you're trying to work out I guess why the data takes the shape that it does yes. and you think you've got it and then yes. you look at something and it doesn't fit the pattern. Yes. Like, no. <laughs> but um, that's all grist to the mill, though, isn't it? I mean, it's all part of the research yeah. process, and you do end up with a better product at the end. Um, 
if you have to discard your pet theories, you know, yeah, along uh, the way. Yeah, I mean, often it turns into a completely different kind of investigation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Has, has there been something, looking back over what you've done, is there anything that particularly stands out for you? Like, was there a particular kind of study that was really, like, you really love doing, that you're really into? Um, well, I think for me, I always tend to like best what I'm doing kind of at the moment, or okay. the recent research. So I suppose the book that I worked on, Artifacts and Society, most recently, I think I was quite, I got very engaged with that. So, but I think you always tend to like the last thing that you've published, don't you? And then be less fond of the things going further back <laughs> in time. I don't know whether that's true for everybody, but. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you look back at any of the stuff you've done so far and have a little bit of a kind of, oh, what, I should have done um, this or I should have done that? I mean, I mean, there's not much you can, you know, obviously you kind of just, you don't know at the time. No, I think you do get an awareness that in your earlier published work, there might, you're not speaking from such a well-informed position. So obviously as you learn more, as you go on. You, could, you look back at earlier stuff and you think, oh, well, I obviously didn't have a very deep knowledge of this topic when I was writing about it. So, but that's kind of inevitable, isn't it? Mm. Because you're bound to start your research career without that depth of knowledge. Um, but it doesn't mean that you don't have something useful to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Do you do you get a sense of pride having done a Shire book? I was wondering because <laughs> I, I know so many people that swear by those books. And well, just... it's apparently it's my best-selling oh, really? item probably. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think somebody said once that, uh, it, and you know, it's cheap and it's widely available, much more widely mm. than, than my other publications, I guess. So that would make sense. Yeah, I just I just know some archaeologists <laughs> who just swear by those books that carry mm. some of them around in their bags because uh -huh. they just they just find them so handy. Mm. Um, just, do you know you've got a Wikipedia page? Yes, I, I, <laughs> I do know that. I was a bit disconcerted to find it had my age and things on it. Oh, really? When, when I looked at it. So, so yes, it wasn't totally feeling positive uh, experience finding out, but uh, yeah, it's funny. Oh, so that's it's a landmark. A I, guess, landmark. I guess it is, yeah. Um, I mean, given the focus on, on objects, on design, have there been... I mean, I mentioned about particular studies that mm. you may have stood out for you, but are there been particular objects? Like, I mean, like singular objects. Is there something where, mm. you, if somebody was to ask you, what is one of the one or two of the most favourite things that you've ever yes. come across? Yes, I think that's quite a hard one to answer. Actually, I'm generally more drawn to things that I find aesthetically pleasing, which is kind of strange because obviously that's not relevant to how important they are for archaeological information. Um. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the project I did a few years back where I did look at um, mosaics in particular and art history a bit more. Um, I suppose, I mean, one object that I am very fond of is the statue of the Tetrarch that's at the corner of St Mark's Square oh, really? in Venice. But, yes, I think that's a, that's a favourite object, I guess. How yeah. so? Is it just because just it's, um, it's so iconic from the period? Exactly, it's, it is iconic from the period and just the experience of seeing it for the first time and just seeing a little fragment of of late antiquity just clinging on there amid all this modern um, kind of hubbub in St Mark's Square. It was quite quite an interesting moment. Yeah, and I've I've used it a lot in teaching and it's always a good one to get discussion going with students and, yeah... And I, I, I mean, I do really like the late Roman art style. I know some people don't warm to it, um, but I really like the sort of style, the stylization that it has. And the massive eyes and the kind well, of exactly, the... yes. I think it's really strong from a design point of view. 
Um, so I've always really liked um, late Roman art. I can't, I can't really think of another object kind of off the top of my head. Obviously, there's a lot of beautiful objects. I mean, if we're talking about metalwork, I suppose you would have to look at sort of Iron Age, Latin metalwork is beautiful, isn't it? Mm. So that's, you know, aesthetically, that's that's amazing. Um, a lot of Roman objects are kind of a bit prosaic looking, but, yeah. uh, you know, you get attached to them as you, as you study them and find out more. Do you ever sort of feel that through studying the objects as well that you kind of get a... Uh... A greater sense of people's everyday lives. I remember because you did the mm. was it the study on the spoons where yes, was it about the right. whole it yes. was the right handed thing or you expect people to be right handed but they show um, to be left handed? No, that, that was right? that was shears. Um, okay, yeah. So when you look at how shears are, how the blades overlap on shears. If you look at modern shears and then you compare them to scissors, the blades are all set a different way round to modern scissors. So that was that's kind of strange, and. I looked when I looked at ancient shears, the same was true. So that was sort of led me down some interesting paths of exploration, really. Um, I think it's all to do with the function of the object. When you shear a sheep, you hold these shears horizontally, and when you cut with scissors, you, you're generally holding the scissors vertically. I think it's something to do with that. But what was interesting was that I can ask sheep shearers themselves why the shears were, had the blades set in this way, and that they weren't able to tell me. Um, and I think there's a whole generation of craft knowledge and knowledge in many different spheres of life that's just been lost. Um, these skills have been rediscovered by people who are interested in learning. So hand shearing obviously is obsolete as a practice in agriculture and it's been rediscovered by sort of new practitioners. But of course, they don't have that connected history to generations of people who've used these shears and, and know what the fun- how the function relates to the object. So that's a great loss, really, for, for archaeology, that you can't connect back to, to people who've used craft tools um, that are no longer used today. Do you find yourself quite often going out and talking to people that um, um, work in craft in the modern world? I have world? been doing increasingly because I find that, as archaeologists, we know so little about the functionality of artefacts. I mean, I was talking to my hairdresser about the scissors and that she uses. And, of course... There's lots of features of scissors that we never think about that, that are crucial to the scissors. I mean, apparently, as you use the scissors, they become kind of personalised. They develop a kind of tension um, so that only a certain person can use them. If someone else tries to use them, the blades won't mesh together at exactly the same point because okay. of the different pressure oh. that your hands put on the blades. So they become very personalised artefacts. And, of course, you'd never realise that. Wow, well, I never had no idea about no, that. No, so <laughs> and I think there's lots of things like that. There's lots of things that are very specific to how people use artefacts. And only practitioners who use those artefacts all the time will know about those things. So I think it's really important to, to talk to, to craft practitioners and just people who have much more familiarity with an artefact type than you do. I guess it's the, the best archaeological analogy I can think of is when you have a trowel mm. and the trowel over time yes. just gets worn down and you get used to the grip That's of it. Right, exactly. And then if somebody hands you a new trowel... It I feels like, yeah. uncomfortable, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I had the same trowel for eight years and then it got buried somewhere in Derbyshire. Um, and then I started using a new one again. Like, this <laughs> yes. is so strange. It just yes. doesn't feel natural. Well, it's a great example of how a, a functional object develops all these sort of symbolic meanings and personal yeah. and sentimental associations, doesn't it? Because people get very attached to their trowels. I was digging on an archaeological site once and uh, one of the supervisors lost his trowel and he, he had such a meltdown about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
ended up trying to shift some of the spoilage, trying to look for it. As, yeah. Yeah. It's so it's, it's, I, I was wondering about this recently, <laughs> Dean. I was like, what does it say about people's status on an archaeological mm. dig, given the size of the oh, trap? Yes, I mean, that's very, very important. suggestive, but there you go. <laughs> no, 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 it's, <laughs> very, it's, it's very important. But when yes. it's the yes. smaller, the smaller, the, the more the, credibility the, you have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The more you've used it, so the more kind of senior you might say. When, when you see somebody with a new trowel, you might think, well, they've not really done a lot of digging before. Yes. But alternatively, <laughs> they might have done, but they might have lost their trowel, well, got a new one, yes. but then they're feeling like, <laughs> Then they almost have to defend themselves and say, like, no, this this trial does not represent yes. me. Yes, exactly. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, so over your time in archaeology, do you how do you think the discipline has actually changed at all? Mm. Do you think how do you think new areas have kind of opened up? Um, I think there have been some changes. I mean, if we're thinking about Roman Britain specifically, I think certainly there's been a real transformation in the amount of data that's available to us since I was an undergraduate. Um, because of PPG 16 and things like that, there's been a vast amount of more archaeological excavation and the publication started to come through from about the year 2000, perhaps relating to all of that that works. So that's been a massive explosion of data. And then for me personally, also the Portable Antiquities Scheme mm-hmm. uh, has been really important. Of course, that was also set up in the around the turn of the, the century and that's had a massive effect on uh, on research in artefacts. So, the, yeah, there have been some big changes in data availability. There also have been kind of changes in um, wider perspectives. I think now um, integrating theoretical perspectives into your work has become a lot more mainstream, and that's a good development, I think, as well. I think when I was a student, it seemed more polarised between people who were interested in theory and people who were... Well, obviously, they did have their own theoretical perspective, but they didn't really recognise that as being a fundamental part of their their work. So there was a, it was very oppositional between post-processualists and processualists. That was still quite a live kind of argument, I think, when I was a, an undergraduate and the, in the early years of, of postgraduate. Um, and that seems to have calmed down a bit. You know, it's mm-hmm. people seem a bit more inclusive, a bit more willing to engage with diverse approaches. Theory seems to have got bedded down a bit more across the board in archaeology. So those have been changes, I think, that I've noticed, yeah. yeah. I mean, going back to the portable antiquity scheme, because um, you're involved in a number of groups in that mm. regard, aren't you? The Roman Small Finds Group, and also as well, according according to your Shire book below, uh, <laughs> Instrumentum. Uh, is um, that actually still going? I mean, I, I've yes, never really heard of it. Yes, it's still going. They produce a, a newsletter, and they've got a fantastic database of artefacts which is a, a great resource. So, that, again, that's another great resource that we just didn't have sort of 10 or, or 15 years ago. Um, so I'd really recommend anyone working on artefacts kind of uses that resource. Um, yeah, I mean, I've not been to one of their conferences for a while, but they do sort of periodic conferences. I mean, it's a very broad group because they're interested in artefacts of any period. So it's, it's cross periods. And I think initiatives like that are to be encouraged because I think we do all still work work in little period-specific silos a lot of the time and it's, it's good to get the perspective of people studying artefacts in other periods as well. Mm. Do they, so they cover just the entire history then? And it's just uh, Yes, that's right. So the, the website kind of goes into you know all periods of artefacts. Mm. Uh, it's a massive undertaking really, um, but yeah, one that should be supported. Where do you, where do you think things could go in the future or should go? Well, well, I mean, like if, you, if you're thinking mm. about research avenues or the, the discipline yes. as a whole, where do you think? What? 
Well, I think there's been a bit of renewed interest in experimental archaeology in, in recent years, and I think that's a good development. It goes back to what we were saying about learning from craft practitioners and really understanding the processes of making artefacts. And that not only informs manufacture, but it also informs everything that we can understand about those artefacts. So for me, learning about manufacture means that I can recognise the signs of manufacture on the artefacts, even if I'm studying them from a completely different perspective. So I think experimental archaeology has a lot of potential. What sort of stuff do they have going on at, at track camp? I mean, because you guys are up there playing playing the instruments, That's right. right. So we took our musical instruments and um, we did some little demonstrations and taught people to play some some tunes. There was a guy making nets and he talked to us about Roman fishing. Oh, that was um, Lee, right? That's yeah. right, different types of fibres that you might use and um, net making technology. And there was a Roman cooking, so Sally Granger, is it, was oh, there yeah. with... Um, various types of fish sauces and things that we could try so that was tasty that was interesting well they're not so bad actually i mean she said that um the one that the romans there are different types of fish sauce apparently which i didn't really realize oh, and there's I think one... everyone just thinks garum and that's <laughs> well it, exactly yeah. so the ones that she had for us to sample were not, were not the more fearsome ones uh, okay. <laughs> and and of course you it's only a, a, a condiment that you mix with other things as well so the fish sauce was mixed with things like wine or vinegar or fruit juice or whatever. So it would only be a, a small part of the flavour of fruit juice. Any. I might have got that wrong, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering. I guess there's only still a limited sort of number of things it could be mixed with, I guess. I don't yes, know. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think Joe was telling me she compared it to Thai fish sauce, mm. was the best analogy she could have. That's right. right, yeah. It's supposed to be quite similar. Did it have yeah. quite a pungent odour? Um, not so much. Not when it was mixed in with other things, no, because it's more the spices in the dish, and I think Roman food was quite spicy. So, sort of thing you'd have on your own spice rack slash in the kitchen. Or... Well, um, no, we don't have any fish sauce in our <laughs> kitchen, so <laughs> might be a market for it to come back. Well, um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, I saw as well they had the the clothing uh, mm. replicas going on. That was Faith, wasn't it? That yes, that's that right. So Faith, who did have PhD with us at Kent, um, some fabulous replicas of tunics and. Uh, cloaks and things like that so it was fun to see people dressing up in those and enjoying it yeah. yeah i mean for you personally where where do you think the next kind of avenue of research might be or do you are you thinking that far ahead at the moment um, or are you just we'll just get this done and then we'll... no i'm very focused on the the roman egypt project at the moment and i could see myself maybe staying in that area for my next project because i think it's it's such a neglected area for as far as artifact studies goes um, but <clears throat> i've not really got any more concrete than that in my plans at the moment i tend to be very much focused on what i'm doing and making sure that i get things achieved from that before i move on to the next um, stage yeah. what's the what's the plans with the project what are the outputs that you're um, hoping to get well, out of it? hopefully we'll, we'll have a co-authored book between myself joe stoner and april pudsey and then also an article which outlines the process of creating the replicas of the musical instruments and i think there'll also be another article that's more narrowly focused on the pan pipes that we re recreated and that will be myself and david crease who's a music scholar from newcastle um, because there's quite a lot of kind of nitpicking detail that you need to go mm. into which is of great interest to music scholars so that one needs to be targeted a bit more at music scholars do you see yourself doing more in the way of experimental archaeology is that something you um, want to keep 
Yes, I think so. I think it would would be interesting, although it's it's a really challenging thing to to engage with because there are so many problems that you encounter and so many gaps in your knowledge. Um, So I am potentially interested in doing more more of that. Yeah, but it, it has to be really carefully planned. Is there any, I guess actually, uh, is there anything that you'd like to go back and look at again? Is there anything that you'd like to revisit in, from um, studied before? That's not generally been the way that I've, my research tends to to work. I think I tend to want to, to try something new. I think I really like learning new things. So I think it's unlikely that I would go back and revisit an area that I've studied a lot. I mean, something that I've, the only area that I do perennially return to is the the transition between the end of the Roman period and the beginning of the medieval period in in Britain. I find that period very, very interesting, as many scholars do. And um, I have published a number of papers in that area. And so I'm sure I'll return to that area, but hopefully from a new angle or with a new set of data, um, just to, to make it something fresh. Do you have hit periods where, because sometimes I wonder, is it like, I wonder about the whole thing that I've never really had it thus far, I guess, but that whole idea of writer's block, like the mm. idea of, do you ever, ever have a point where you're like research wise, you're just like, oh, what do I do now? Or is it always, do you find that um, throughout it's always been like a kind of a constant flow? It's not been too bad so far. I think you do normally um, see a continuity from one project to the next in that a question or something interesting will pop up in one project that you don't have time to address at that stage, but then it will feed into the next project. Uh, how do you find the whole dealing with museum collections? Is it? Is, I mean, like the, the database that you've got at the mm. moment, I'm guessing, is pretty massive. Is it pretty easy to manage or, or is it...? Um, yes, it's OK. It's it's not on the scale of kind of big data. That's, that's a whole different thing altogether, but... Um, Yes, I suppose I've I've always worked with sort of database programs in my research, so that's been a, a continuity. So I'm really used to just building databases and custom making them custom specific to to what I want to find out. Um, so that's never been a, a big problem, really. Can you tell us any any other interesting things that you found out throughout the research project? Is there anything that's like jumped out at you, or you've just been like, "Oh wow, I didn't see that that coming"? We talked about the music mm. as being one yes. example. Has there been anything else where you've well, been like? Yes. Oh. I think, I mean, the beads have been interesting as well and the jewellery generally because um, we have had some very exotic objects popping up which we didn't expect in the Petrie collection. So there's a Germanic hairpin, for instance. Oh, really? Yes, and it's from a specific site. So it does seem to be an item that was excavated by Petrie in Egypt and it's a, a late 4th, early 5th century hairpin from, you know, from the Germanic areas of, of Europe. So things like that pop up and looking at the beads we identified that we had some Indo-Pacific beads which are coming long-distance trade from Sri Lanka. We had some other beads that were from Iran. Um, so things like that have been a bit of a surprise. Um, yeah. Wow, a lot more interconnect- <laughs> interconnectivity going on. Yes, you'd, exactly. You'd imagine. Because yeah. yeah. the period you're looking at, it's just the Roman period or does it um, stretch into the Islamic period at all? Or? No, it's, it doesn't go into the Islamic period, um, but a lot of it turns out to be late antique. So a lot of the... The jewellery particularly, which I've been studying from the Petrie collection, is very, very late. And I think Petrie's dates are by and large a bit too early and and a lot of the material is sort of 6th, 7th century AD. Um, They do have a a small amount of Islamic period material as well, but um, we haven't really studied that as part of the project. 
Do you ever find yourself having to utilise Petrie's notebooks and things like that as well? I did have a bit of a look at what was present in the archive when I first started the project, but the notebooks are very unilluminating about the Roman period. Because Petrie wasn't really very interested in the Roman period himself, so there's, there's very minimal information about that. Of course, I did get interested in Petrie as a character and sort of read his autobiography and some other books about him, and I really enjoyed that because he's obviously a fascinating individualist. Um, So that's been fun as well. Do you think sometimes Roman period Egypt, like probably Hmm. research over the last, I don't know, like 50, 100 years, it's gone a bit of the short thrift a little bit? Um, It's It's been well studied by historians because there's obviously a fabulous amount of evidence from the papyri from Egypt. So that's been really well, it has been really well studied from that perspective. But of course, um, the artefact side of things has been very, very neglected, perhaps because we have all this fantastic information from the papyri, people haven't thought to extend their uh, investigations to to other artefacts as well. So you think that's an area, as you're saying, like you're going to carry oh, on your own research? it's definitely an area yeah. for, for development that there is so little in the way of published work. I mean, it's getting better now. You're starting to find site reports that have artefacts in them, published in them. But it's still uh, most of the material that you work with from Egypt is from antiquarian um, days. Um, and uh, a lot more work needs to be done just on really basic things like chronology um, so there's the scope for such a, a contribution there. Have you been to Egypt? No, I've never uh, been. So there you go. Um, and of course, it's not really built into to the project because it had. It, we were very much focused in the grant application on um, exploiting unused UK mm-hmm. collections that already existed. So, so we didn't incorporate any any travel to Egypt. But obviously, it would be great to go there and. Uh, oh yeah, I've never been myself. Go to Cairo Museum. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the intention as well is to have a museum display. Is that That's right. Of? We've got an exhibition opening in January at the Peachy Museum. It will be a little exhibition of musical instruments in their collection, and we'll also have sound recordings that we've been making and replica instruments for people to have a look at. So hopefully, it'll be a fun thing for people to go and learn a bit more about the sounds of Roman Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. People can catch up with what you're doing at the blog. That's right. So we've got a blog um, kind of updated on our general activities. So there's quite a lot of information on there about our processes of making the replica musical instruments and sound recording and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's another way people can find out about what we've been doing. Yeah, so it's a, what's, the, what's the name of the blog? Do you want to just drop that in? Um, it is, it's just blogs.kent.ac.uk. Something like that. And it's Roman-Egypt, kind of, something like that? Or, no, it's, I you, think it's Egypt Artifacts maybe is in yeah. the blog, in the URL. I guess if someone just types in Ellen Swift Egypt It's not too hard yeah, to find. Yeah. If, if you type in Roman and late antique yeah. artifacts, Kent, then you'll it'll pop up. Also, I know Joe advertises it a lot on her Twitter yes, account, so if you right. find, find Joe Stoner online as well. Then yes, I mean, I'm not it. very social media kind of clued up so it's good uh, that joe is yeah she'll tell you about how awful it was running about in the field in the heat wave yeah oh yeah doing <laughs> ringing the sound bells and trying to that, measure decibel levels yeah. and things you did a bit of that too oh you, yeah so. that's the thing with these sort of things isn't it when it finally uh, comes to fruition at the end it looks yes. great you don't realize sometimes how much hard crop exactly i mean we i thought it we'd have a lovely day um doing the sound measurements so we wanted to play the instruments out in the open air um get a a sense of the loudness by recording the decibels um and of course it was really hot we didn't have any water there was lots of noise from 
other people um, on the playing field. So these things are just much, much harder than you think they're going to be. Yeah, rewarding in the end. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, it's it's fun to do stuff like that. And again, I learned a huge amount about acoustics and uh, things that I had absolutely no idea about. So that was all good. Great. Well, keep an eye out then for the blog and for the museum exhibition coming in January at the Petri Museum. It was on the 22nd of January, so do look out for that. Cool. Right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Cheers.